Testing one, two, three. Testing one, two, three. Hey guys, welcome back to Storytime Podcast. I am your host, Haley Lira, and today I'm going to tell you guys about the Spokane, Washington serial killer, Robert Lee Yates Jr. The thing that really gave me the heebie-jeebies about him is that he could be your neighbor, your friend, your dad's friend, even your own husband. Unlike other serial killers, he could maintain relationships and connections with people. He was likable and he fit in really well with society. Before I get started, I just want to say thank you so much for tuning in. You know, I love doing this. It's such a, probably my favorite hobby that I have. Don't forget to go check out my Facebook page, Storytime Slayer, and that is where every week I upload videos and any kind of information pertaining to the case. And then also I have an Instagram, which I'm way less active on. It's story underscore time underscore slayer. Also, feel free to send me an email. It's at storytimepods at gmail.com. And I would love to hear from people about how prostitutes are treated in your area of the world. Okay, let's get started. Robert's killing spree lasted from 1975 to 1998. 13 of his victims were sex workers typically known to linger in the Skid Row area of Spokane, Washington on East Sprager Street in downtown. And this is what would eventually put Yates on the police's radar. Because within two years, 12 women were murdered, 1997 and 1998. All the women were sexually assaulted, shot in the head, and dumped on the side of the road in different areas with a plastic bag tied around their head. The victims had the bag tied over their head after he shot them. And this was, I believe, to contain the blood while he transported their bodies. If I understand everything correctly, he transported the bodies after the crime, so they were not murdered in the place that they were left. Victims would also have different plants with them, as if it had been picked from the ground and then tossed onto the victims. They also had red fibers, believed to be from the perpetrator's vehicle carpet. Majority were left in more rural areas, but some were also left within like a block or two of where they were known to work. These prostitutes stay and work in a typically small area of town within a three-block radius in downtown Spokane. The first body was found June 14, 1996. Two boys were sitting at a bus stop, and they kept getting an awful whiff of something. They peeped around and actually ended up finding the body of Shannon Zielinski. She was a waitress that turned to prostitution due to a bad drug addiction. She'd been shot in the head, not there, but her body was placed there after the fact. A year later, the second body was found in the outskirts of town. Another woman shot in the head. This was Heather Hernandez. That same day of finding Heather Hernandez, a second body was found, a 16-year-old named Jennifer Joseph. She was a reported runaway, and her blouse was missing a button that would later be found. And I'll tell you why. So there's enough similarities between these three crimes to indicate that it's a serial killer. So a task form was put together to find the serial killer. And it was not easy. And it took a minute to gather this task force because Spokane was like a relatively small town. There just wasn't a lot of hands on deck. 1988, they did form their task force. And first they hit the streets talking to the known prostitutes. Then the idea was to look through their police files. Because this was such a small radius where prostitutes were known to be, They would frequent this area 
and it was likely there was a ticket or an arrest of a person for even something as small as a traffic violation or solicitation charge within the area. They believed this assailant was obviously a frequent flyer with the sex workers and with police making regular passes through, they just thought, okay, we've probably come across this guy at some point in time. Let's check our records. While that was going on, they also combed through all the victims for an analysis of hair, fibers, and clues potentially leading to the assailant. Now, they did have DNA, but of course, you know, they didn't know who it belonged to yet. What they thought about their guy off the top of their analysis was that he definitely lived in the area, he was super comfortable, and likely someone they would not associate with prostitutes. This was probably a secret life or a double life. The prostitutes were really scared, but one of the witnesses was a prostitute that saw Jennifer Joseph get into a white Corvette, and that was the last time Jennifer was seen. Remember, Jennifer was a 16-year-old. This information actually helped crack the case substantially. Now, the police got a list of all registered Corvettes in the Spokane County, East Washington, and Northern Idaho area. Then they took this list of registered individuals and compared it to the list of people that they'd arrested near the prostitution area in Spokane. It was a moment before they had any substantial leads. So in the meantime, Darla S. Scott is found, same MO, on November 5th. Then Melinda Marser is discovered December 7th. Then Sean Johnson, December 18th. Then, the day after Christmas in 1997, the bodies of Sean McLennan and Laura Watson are found deceased. So that makes seven victims in only one year. The following year, February 8th, 1998, Sonny Oster is found. Linda Mabin, April 1st. Melody Murfin was found May 12th. Michelle and Duran was found July 7th and Connie Ellis October 13th. This is crazy. Okay, so it's November 1998 and police are completely stumped. They have no one on the list with a white Corvette that was also on their list of people known to frequent the Spokane prostitution area. And by the way, yes, Robert had had a white Corvette at one point, but he actually sold it and got a Honda. So November 1998, all the police know to do is they're going to actually stalk the Spokane prostitution area. And what they decided to do was they were literally going to stop anybody they saw driving around the area. Robert Yates was actually stopped and he lied and said that he was giving his daughter's friend a ride home. Now they didn't arrest him or anything, but they did put his list down on the list of people that frequented the red light district in Spokane. Robert Lee Yates was an unlikely suspect that popped up as having a white Corvette registered to him at one point in time and being on the list of men in the prostitution area. And I just want to mention he would have gotten away with it had he not been stopped in the red light district that night because what happened was after that they had tracked down a white corvette with a brand new owner and when they asked the owner who he bought it from he named robert yates they wrote that down they went and looked at their list bada bing bada boom robert yates was on the dirty john list plus the corvette he owned had red fibers that matched up with the prostitutes red fibers so not to mention 
Robert was also a family man with a military background and unlikely suspect, which is what they'd profiled this killer as. So then police go and talk to Robert Yates and they ask him for a DNA sample, which he declines. Why did he decline? Because he said he was a family man and that was not a good request for a family man. But that didn't matter because the fibers found in the Corvette were an exact match to the fibers found on Jennifer Joseph. And then they also found blood evidence that was a match to Jennifer Joseph in the Corvette. Plus, remember that little button that I said she was missing? They found a button under the seat that matched the button missing on her shirt. What are the odds that this didn't get cleaned out? Because Robert was said to have kept his car immaculate. Immaculate. He has to. He's a prostitute killer. He's got to make sure there's no evidence, right? So they, of course, arrest him for the murder of Jennifer on April 18th in 2000, in which Robert Yates exercised his right to remain silent. I don't know what the hell took them so long to arrest him. I'm assuming they just had to make sure that they had all their shit together, right? So after removing Robert's family from the home to a private location to disclose to them what was going on, they searched his house. And when they did this, they took all the Yates family clothing and checked it for fibers. Robert had a jacket with at least five of the deceased victim's DNA fibers on it. And in one of his children's closet was a jacket that belonged to a victim. He gave Jennifer Joseph, the 16-year-old, he gave her jacket to his middle daughter, Michelle. So now that he's caught, who the fuck is this guy? He's a husband. He's a father. He's a neighbor. He's a son. He's a friend. He was a military veteran who was currently retired and working at a place called Kaiser Aluminum, which was an American aluminum mill in Washington. He was 48 and living in Spokane. He had five kids and a wife. This was a family man. He'd been married for 26 years. At the time of his arrest, I believe his kids ranged from like 10 to 17. He had four girls, Sasha the oldest, then Sonia, Amber, Michelle, and a son named Kyle who was the baby of the family. By all accounts, Robert seemed like a normal man. On top of being an outdoorsman, he loved cars. He looked normal, and even the prostitutes on East Sprague Avenue liked him and would never have suspected him. They enjoyed when he came around. They said he was nice, normal, clean, and paid well. The sex workers who knew him wouldn't have even suspected him. He took his kids camping, he enjoyed baseball, and he would go to lots of ball games. But family and people really, really close to him say that he was strict a bit controlling, too hard on the kids, much of a disciplinarian, and even a little bit emotionally distant. There is a series of home videos showing Robert, who they called Bob, on season two, episode two of American Monster, and the family seems like a happy, fun-loving, joyful family to be around, but his daughter said that he was definitely head of the household kind of guy. What he said went. I mean, he was a military man too, so I could see how he would be a disciplinarian. His father, Robert Sr., did an interview I found, and he said that he did not know what in Robert's life could have caused him to do this. The only unsettling incident he mentions from his son's past was that apparently Robert had been molested at the age of six by a 12-year-old. And his father didn't even know, though, until Robert's wife, Linda, disclosed this information to him years later. 
And when his dad asked Robert about it, Robert confirmed that it did happen, but said it was irrelevant to the situation. I mean, I'm going to assume they mean the arrest and his crime spree. He was said to have grown up as a happy child, 30 miles from Seattle in Oak Harbor. He was a star athlete, good student, and had lots of friends. He enjoyed hiking, fishing, hunting, total outdoorsman. He also sang in the choir and acted in school plays. He grew up a member of the Seventh-day Adventist, which this is a Protestant Christian denomination that thinks of Saturday as the Sabbath. One of his best friends growing up said that he grew up in a nice, clean home with good parents that followed good Christian beliefs. They didn't cuss, drink, smoke, nothing profane or obscure. There was nothing in his childhood to point that he would become a fucking psycho. So in 1974, he and his wife got married. He had a really hard time finding the right job until he decided to join the army and developed a love for helicopters. He actually became a helicopter flying instructor because he was so good at it. He'd found his niche. He was in the military for 18 years and it was in 1996 when he quit the army and settled in Spokane, Washington. Shortly after, he became a serial killer. Linda Yates is not believed to have any knowledge of what her husband was doing. His family was completely devastated when they found out. And they found out after he was arrested April 18th, 2000. So at this point, he was only arrested for the death of one prostitute. And I hate calling this young woman a prostitute because Jennifer was only 16. She was a runaway caught up in drugs and a bad crowd. Ugh, so awful. Okay, so after the arrest, though, of Jennifer, Robert was soon linked to seven murders, and his picture was placed in the paper with an article. That's when the police got a really weird phone call from a woman who Robert actually attempted to kill, but she got away from him and recognized him in the newspaper. Her name was Christina Smith. She was a 32-year-old prostitute that was working near a beauty store at 1 a.m. August 1st, 1998. She asked him if he was the serial killer, and he told her no, that he was a helicopter pilot with the National Guard, and he had five kids. He couldn't do that. It's really unfortunate because there's several interviews with the women of this area that were prostitutes, and they say that they always go with their gut instinct, and they really rely heavily on themselves. So it was such a blow that they were were unable to spot him as the bad guy. Anyway, so he gave Christina $40 for a blow job, but when she began to go down on him, she felt a blow to the back of her head. And she said she was struggling to stay awake, and the man actually asked her for the money back. She managed to escape through the front of the van, and she thought he just hit her in a robbery. She went and she got three stitches to the back of her head. But later in 2000, when she came forward as recognizing him, because his MO was to always shoot victims, they actually, she got an x-ray and she had been grazed by a bullet and still had bullet fragments in her head. So this was as close to an inside look at what Robert Yates's MO and killing method and what his victims went through would be because he would never talk about it. May 31st, 2000, he actually pled not guilty to seven charges of murder and one charge of attempted murder. 
The state was considering the death penalty, and they had pretty decent evidence. So Robert's attorney offered a deal. Robert Yates would not only plead guilty to all of the eight charges, he would also solve six other cases, some dating as far back as 1975, in exchange for life in prison. The police and prosecutor had a lot of mixed emotions, so they actually decided to speak to the victim's loved ones. Twelve of the victim's relatives or loved ones voted for life in prison, and like 19 or so voted for the death penalty. So what they did was they ended up agreeing to charge him for six of the murders and the one attempted murder. They had an extremely strong case against him for the killing of a woman named Sean McLennan, and they had a lot of physical evidence to tie him to it. So they decided what they were going to do is they were going to leave her case out. And that way, if they did the plea deal in hopes of solving six more murders and it didn't pan out, they could charge him for that murder still. I thought that was pretty smart. However, Robert Yates made true to his promise. His first known killings were of Patrick Oliver, who was 21, and Susan Savage, who was 22, and Walla Walla, 1975. Walla Walla is where Robert and his wife Linda lived for a majority of their life together. Patrick Oliver and Susan Savage were last seen July 13th at 2.15 p.m. They were lifelong best friends who went on a picnic in their favorite spot after not seeing each other for like a really long time. They were just going to catch up. This is unfortunately where their bodies were found. Susan had been shot behind the ear, killing her instantly. Patrick, though, was shot through his arm and into his shoulder. Then he was shot a second time in the heart. Patrick was fully clothed and laying on his back. But Susan, her breasts were exposed and she was naked from the waist down and placed on top of Patrick. So she didn't have any indication, though, of sexual assault, by the way. And this was just strange. I don't think anybody really knows why he did it, what he was doing in the area, anything like that. Then in 1988, he killed a Stacy Hahn in Staggett County. The other murders he went ahead and copped to were the two unsolved Spokane murders of Shannon Shalinsky in 1996 and Heather Hernandez in 1997. I believe those were his first two victims in the prostitution serial killing. The final case he solved was Melody Murfin, who had been missing since 1997. And nobody knew where her body was. Robert admitted to the murder at first, but I don't think he wanted to tell them where she was. And the prosecution wouldn't strike a deal unless they knew. And when I tell you where she was, you're going to be like, oh my God, of course he didn't want to tell anybody. So he drew them a picture and she was buried in his own yard outside of his bedroom window. And he fucking buried her there while his wife was asleep, reportedly. As part of the deal, Robert pled guilty to the 13 murders and one attempted murder, but would not give any, any intel as to his methodology, why he did this, what he was thinking, nothing. Unfortunately, the prosecution didn't have the leverage, so Robert, all he really did was make a statement to the victim's family in court as an apology. He said, nothing I say will erase the sorrow, the pain, the anguish you feel, and I have caused you in your lives. I have caused much sorrow, much pain. You can't know how much pain I've caused for you and for my family. 
I've taken away the love, the compassion, and the tenderness. He then apologized to each victim's family individually. So it was like, to the family and friends of Shannon Soakley, I am sorry. To the family and friends of Jennifer, I am sorry, and so on. And then at the end, he said, in my struggle, I've overcome guilt and shame. I've turned to God. The families who got to do a victim impact statement and they were not kind. They were not forgiving. They were like, you're sick, rotten hell, burn in hell, et cetera, et cetera. Then Robert's daughter, Sasha, and her grandpa actually addressed the court. Remember, Sasha's the oldest. And Sasha said, I feel terrible that this has happened. It feels like a dream. I'm still in shock. It makes me mad this happened to so many people. They didn't deserve this. No one deserves to be killed like that. No one. Robert was sentenced to 408 years. Then, then he had to face two more charges of two bodies that were found near Fort Lewis, Tacoma in Pierce County, Washington. That was the Melinda Mercer, who was killed in 1997, and Connie Ellis in 1998. Now, this prosecutor refused a plea deal and went for the death penalty. Yates pled not guilty, but this time he was actually found guilty of the death penalty in 2002. However, the death penalty was outlawed in Washington in 2018, so he got commuted to life in prison, which I hate. I love the death penalty. It's true. Something I found interesting was in 1945, Robert's grandma had actually killed her husband with an axe while Robert's dad was in the house asleep. His dad woke up and came downstairs to find Robert's grandpa and his mom, Robert's grandma, was just sitting in a chair. Apparently, the couple had 11 kids and her husband had to work all the time, so she just snapped. I also want to mention that despite Robert being married 26 years, he did not have the perfect marriage. So about a month after Linda and Robert got married, this is according to a book about Robert called The Spokane Killer, The Life of Serial Killer Robert Lee Yates Jr., Robert had drilled a hole in like the ceiling or the wall so he could see their neighbors have sex. She actually packed up and left his sorry ass, but she went back. And this happened a few times throughout the relationship. She would leave and she would come back. Linda does say she could have been a little bit more prying and was a little bit suspicious of Robert, but I don't think she thought he was killing people. I think she thought that he was just having an affair or cheating on her because he would say he was going to go hunting, but he would be dressed really nice and have cologne on. Like, you don't hunt with cologne on, number one. More important than the attire, you don't hunt with cologne on. Anyway, guys, thank you so much for tuning in, and I will talk to you next week. Bye.